Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, Determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Scott Bass, we've got TreesWax.com with us today. Yeah, I've been using my TreesWax. I've been surfing lately, and TreesWax in my... uh board shorts and just super stoked on the traction that the trees wax gives me and in addition of course david the trees wax is environmentally um it's a concerned product i mean what else do you need to know there's not much more to say it's petroleum free surf wax so it's it's sourced from rocks and trees we always say but specifically made from pine resin olive oil Candelilla wax, I think is how it's pronounced. Limestone. Um, you can get it at treeswax.com. It works every bit as good as ev- any surf wax that I've ever used. It's just petroleum free. So that's all you need to know. It's available at Half Moon Base uh, Board Shop, Zuma, Zuma J's uh, in Malibu, and then Pride Surf and Skate in OB San Diego. And you'll be able to meet Christian, the guy who produces this fabulous wax at the boardroom show. I'm sure he'll have samples to offer as well. Yeah, for sure. And then we don't say it enough because it's actually a part of my daily experience, but drinkag1.com slash surf as well. Right oh, there. yeah. AG1 is a big part of my daily routine. Uh, I've been known to pop a... a um, I think they're called like Spectra Silver. I don't know. My wife gives me some tablets to eat, but this is part of my routine in addition to those tablets. Tons of organic vin- um, minerals and vitamins here with my AG1, and I absolutely love it. In fact, I'm running low. I need to order some more. I'll send it to you. Thanks for the reminder. Uh, yeah, drinkag1.com slash surf. Go there, research it on your own, but you'll see why. 
everybody's on board nowadays. Sid Abruzzi just texted me last week and he said, hey, shout out. Thank you for the recommendation. I'm on day three, feeling great. That's so cool. Love uh, Sid. And um, I want to say Sid's got something coming up. Yeah, uh, it's Water, Water Brothers, the documentary. That's right. Yeah, the film. And I think there's a premiere like this month, maybe. Yeah, it's like a day or two after his birthday. Um, and they've been working on that for a long time. He has so much archival footage, you know, of, over the years of all of his exploits. And uh, so it's kind of high time for somebody to be able to take advantage of that and to make something with it. And the team that he linked up with is very notable. I forget their credits because he told me two years ago who it was. Um, and I looked it up then, but it's impressive, you know, yeah. like fully legit. And all of the, uh, the marketing and the teaser and all that stuff looks like it as well. So we're looking forward to that. Um, and we'll talk about it more when it comes out, but water brothers, the film, and he's on board. He's going to have drink, the best year ever between, <laughs> between his AG one, his birthday and his film. Uh, Sid is going to have a banner year peak package is what I like to call it. And uh, drink AG. It tastes <laughs> Go. good. The friggin' AG1 tastes so good. Like, I just pounded it. It's Why wouldn't you? My my entire life growing up, there was either tasted good and was bad for you or tasted awful and was good for you. And at some point in the last decade, those two have merged, and my favorite things are actually things that taste good now, you know? Yeah, vegetables. So, anyways, <laughs> drinkag1.com slash surf. Absolutely. As we see, some movement at the takeoff zone. It's Kelly Slater grabbing rail. A clean entry. This thing holding open. It spits. Uh, when it spit me, I thought it was going to spit me off my board. Comes out with the spit. Spits him out. Comes out after the spit. Gets spat out of another good-looking wave here. Spit. 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 We're just spitballing, right? Yeah, I got Yeah, guy. Yeah, friggin' guy. Yeah, guy, David. It is a yeah, guy type of Tuesday here in Southern California. It's the very first day of August, the year 2023, and it's spit. We're talking all things surf. David Lee Scales, Scott Bass. David, good morning. Good morning, Scott Bass. We're right in the middle of the U.S. Open. Exciting times around Huntington Beach. Fist <laughs> fights going down. Pit bulls, chain wallets, as you like to say. <laughs> Yeah, it's pretty it's pretty much like epitome Huntington Beach right now, like knee high socks, uh shorts down to your ankles, yeah, chain wallets, pit bulls, tats, face As, tats. I to be perfectly honest, Huntington Beach probably does deserve all of the blame, but there is a thing that is when it when it's ninety in Riverside, it becomes nine oh nine in Huntington. Right. Which is uh for those who aren't local 909 is the area code for 45 minutes inland in riverside so when it's 90 degrees out there is when it becomes riverside in huntington essentially but the truth is i think everything we've identified already that represents huntington beach culture it doesn't just represent riverside culture represents huntington as much as anything else and yeah i agree with you it ain't it ain't pretty no but i will say this my dear friend richie cravey who uh, I've grew, I grew up here knowing Richie. I've seen him grow up as a young lad, um, and I'm good friends with his brother Chris and his father, uh, Rich Sr. Uh, Richie Cravey is in the world longboard hunt. He's in the longboard division. His very first heat, he took out Taylor Jensen and Troy Mothershead. 
Wow. And uh, Richie Cravey is an old friend of mine, a guy I used to do battle with and against in uh, surf contests locally here. But he's uh, on the rise. And so I'm watching actively. I'm watching Richie Cravey. This is my he's he and um, uh, Fiero Vahini Fiero. Those are the two people I'm kind of I've got a rooting interest. So I'm kind of just like looking at the press releases and seeing where they're at. I got to admit, I haven't watched any heats, but uh, if they make it through some more heats, I'm going to try to find time to to tune in when they're when they're surfing. It's funny, like Vahini, and I know you've mentioned Al Cleland Jr.'s dad in the past. Yeah. When all of your cohorts, their kids are now professional surfers, <laughs> and that becomes your rooting interest, that's a real indicator of your age. Uh, but they're they're all having banner years as well. Your friends' kids. So that's like Bella right. Kenworthy too. Like Jason's daughter. There's so many. Yeah. There's quite a few actually. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, so I was going to ask if you were watching the U.S. Open, and obviously you're not. But no. it's. I, I mean, here's the reality of the U.S. Open. It is kind of a cultural event, um, yeah. and there are some implications for the surf world. First of all, the entire industry uses it as a focal point to premiere their new movies, to release new products, all that kind of stuff. So while surfing was the original conceit for the thing, it is now um, that is just the smallest portion. I feel like the BMX or not even BMX now, the motocross portion is probably the biggest portion and draws the biggest crowd. Yeah. But but the surf um, industry still uses it to pitch to all of that crowd all of that crowd that comes into town it's like well come watch the surf video and we'll give you free beer from whatever the beer sponsor is so there's all that stuff happening and there are great surf films that we kind of see premiered there i know quicksilver just released one repeater that's incredible um but the other thing as it relates to the surfing is that it has implications for the championship tour this is a uh, challenger series event with a lot of points attached to it cole hausman just qualified for the championship tour based yeah, on yeah well i mean he, he solidified it here but he won two events back to back previously so that really put him in the position and then jacob wilcox who is somebody that we've seen get wild cards into the bells event in the past um and maybe margaret river too actually he's right on the cusp as well so he can qualify and when he's gotten those wild cards into the ct events he's actually been an upset he's upset some big names in those events so <laughs> kind of exciting times um surrounding that at the U.S. Open. I would agree with you that I'm not as sort of turned off the way I have been in the past, mainly because I, I will never go up there, so I have no reason to be turned off by it. But I will say this, that the cultures have seemed to commingle much. Uh, like in the past when, you know, like let's say the 90s or even the early 2000s, the cultures of surf and skate and moto, there was this real kind of like separation for whatever reason, you know, like they wanted to not be together. And I think as the generation has moved forward, and I know with my son's generation, all of that stuff is okay together. Like it's okay to skate and to surf and to dig motocross and to, you know, what a snowboard, like it's all, it's not as, def, uh, there was a delineation in the past in everyone's minds about it. Like, oh no, you know, but I think that's, I think there's commingling and I think it's good. But, and on top of what you mentioned regarding the surf industry, as you know, David, they have the Surfers Hall of Fame induction. I'm, I get it kind of confused, to be honest with you. There's the Surfers Walk of Fame and there's the Surfing Hall of Fame. I'm not sure, I, to this day, I get it confused and I actually vote on some of it. 
But I do believe that Dick Metz is being inducted into one of those this weekend. And I know for a fact that Don Hansen, uh, two legendary surf guys that are in their 80s, and of course, Dick's in his 90s. Um, I believe those two guys, yeah, being inducted into those halls of fame up there, or the walk of fame, if you will. That's funny. I don't, I've always been confused about it too, and I thought it was just me. Uh, <laughs> but they are two different things, right? The walk of fame is not synonymous with the hall of fame. Is that correct? That's right. There's the, I okay. believe, I know there's the surfing walk of fame. Yeah. And I, and one of the shops, like Jax does one of them, and then, HSS, I think, is involved with the other one. But again, don't quote me on any of this. I'm not an well, a Huntington Beach expert. I do know that the Walk of Fame is, uh, as it states, it's where you get a tile on the ground and you put your hands in. Um, it's a placard, essentially, a tile on the ground, and then you put your hands in the cement next to it. And so I know that Italo Ferreira is being nominated or inducted into that. Uh, Fernando Aguirre and Leyland Conley, who's a local writer for the o OC Register. She's been covering sports, but surfing specifically um, for probably 20 years now. Yeah, yeah. And has made great contributions. You know, like literally, I, sure. I saw her on the beach for a decade straight. She would just show up randomly and just survey what was going on. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, so that's the Walk of Fame. But I, I never quite understood whether it was synonymous with the Hall of Fame or not. But Yeah, yeah. Um... Look, you can it. Google it, figure it all out, but it's a little too much for our research. <laughs> yeah, our research team is uh, busy doing other things right now. I've got an incredible story for you. Can't wait. I love incredible stories. Well, a man's body was, I'm, I'm reading now from this story that I read this morning. A man's body was found inside a plastic barrel at the beach in Malibu, California, after a lifeguard spotted the unusual item floating offshore. The body was inside a 55-liter black drum, which was discovered at Malibu Lagoon State Beach. Homicide investigators are examining the circumstances surrounding the death of the man who was identified as a black adult. Investigators do not yet know how long the body had been in the container adding it did not appear to be significantly decomposed. A state park maintenance worker first spotted this large drum floating in the lagoon around 3 p.m. on Sunday. The worker retrieved the heavy barrel using a kayak and just left the barrel there unopened. But the big high tide overnight swept the barrel back into the water and yesterday at 10 a.m., a lifeguard swam out to get the barrel from the lagoon and opened it on the shore, finding a non-responsive person inside. How would that be if you were that lifeguard and you <laughs> retrieved this black barrel and you just decided to pop open the lid and there's a dead body inside? And this all happened at first point. Surfers were just still surfing. I mean, right there at the lagoon that empties out between second and third. Um, and this this barrel just floating between the pier and first point in pretty incredible. I mean, horrific story, first of all, but yes, as the person who identifies or finds it, that is traumatic to say the least. Yeah. The beach is going to remain open except for the crime scene, quote unquote. Yeah. So not to be too callous and just 
blow past the loss of a human life, but this is Los Angeles and this does happen probably dozens of times a day, I would presume. <laughs> You're kidding. The, Wait a minute. I mean, I don't know. Look up the stats in LA. Oh, you mean homicides? Um, homicides, yeah, yeah, not barrel, not bodies in barrels, but right. I would I would presume homicides. I don't know. I don't yeah. track any of this stuff. All I know is if you turn on the news, you hear about it constantly. Yeah. Um the thought that I had when I saw this story. Yeah. I was forced by my loving family to go to the OC fair on Sunday. Wow. Yeah. Did you go and, kicking and screaming or did you go with a smile on your face looking forward to rides and popcorn? I went with a fake smile and intended to ruin everybody's experience for making me go. Oh no. I've been there. That was my game plan. I've been there. It's better to just let go and just, just roll with it. Um, yeah. And so, it is the unwashed masses of humanity. And I can't not sound pretentious when I explain my experience there. Yeah. So, so I'm not even going to try to conceal it. But look, I get it if you live in the Central Coast and you go to the county fair. I've been to that. It's freaking awesome. I've been to Colorado, the state fair. It's freaking awesome. You're, you know, in an agricultural mecca with farm animals that live nearby and all that kind of stuff. And you're celebrating those local things mm -hmm. in orange County. You're on a blacktop. It's literally in a sprawling metropolis. They find the biggest blacktop that they could find. It's 90 degrees in July. And <laughs> then they bring every, they bring all the metal machinery in and metal fencing in, and they corral everybody in this 90 degree blacktop environment charge you an arm and a leg for everything i mean literally it was like i'm sure we spent over a hundred dollars eating fried food and drinking two beers you know like yeah. it was out of control expensive we probably spent 200 to be honest um and then the rides are rickety it, but the unwashed masses of humanity so the environment i've already set the stage the unwashed masses of humanity i don't know where these people come from uh, it's just culturally a total shock to the system. Yeah. And it makes me, and then I see, see the story like this in Malibu and I'm just like, too I don't know what, what to people. even say at this point. Too many people. Well, I, I understand where you're coming from and it is, it does kind of come off a little bit elitist. It is. But... I don't know how else to put it. It just is. Well, here's the thing. I was talking randomly to somebody else about this. These agricultural districts, and that's what the Costa Mesa Fairgrounds is. It's one of the it's one of the ag districts that was defined and put into the charter, the state charter in the early 50s by one of the governors. And they created these ag districts, and there's one in Ventura, there's one in Del Mar where I have the boardroom show, there's one in Costa Mesa. And they're all throughout the state of California. And they have a specific um, charter that says, look, these things are supposed to support the 4-H club and, yeah. and, and farming and, you know, in Orange County, I'm sure at the beginning it was like, you know, obviously the orange groves and, and they've devolved into deep fried butter. Literally yeah. you go there and you buy deep fried butter for 25 bucks. You park your car That's for no 30 bucks and you yeah, pay 28 bucks for a beer. And, and there's, they just have just enough of the 4-H and the farming thing to keep it so that if anyone calls them on their charter, what they're really supposed to be doing, they can go, oh, right over here, you can pet the pigs. Yeah. And it's like just, they, an, you know, and it's just a revenue grab by these ag districts. And I think it's a bit of, I think it's jumped the shark, quite frankly. For, 
you nailed it. That's exactly what it is. And I did take Austin over to see the animals and the farm and stuff. And you're right. They have a plot of land. It's probably in the, let's say, 100 acres that is the fairgrounds, maybe more, maybe 200 acres. There's a quarter of an acre that grows corn and some like bell peppers and stuff. And yeah. then there's the farm. There's a couple of farm animals over there that look miserable, by the way. And so that is how they justify what you're talking about. But um, yeah, it's it was it was a brutal experience. But then I saw this thing with the Malibu thing and I'm like, is it time to leave? You know what I mean? Like, I understand like these things happen in um, certainly in L.A. and certainly like in, you know, areas that are known Compton and Watts where there are like active gangs and stuff like that. But if it's happening in Malibu, I mean, Malibu, you think of being an enclave and pristine and kind of removed from any of it. But if it's happening in Malibu, you know, is it time to leave is the question. Well, I mean, I don't really know how it worked, but my, what my imagination tells me is that whoever committed this homicide and put this sad, poor person inside this barrel I'm assuming they like rolled it out the Malibu yeah. Creek way up, you know, in Calabasas or whatever, and it just rolled down. Yeah. But I don't know if the creek has that much power to push, you know, I don't know how much water's flowing through that Malibu Creek, but it does at some point. Somebody dumped it, I think, further inland and uh, it moseyed its way down. But again, no expert. Yeah. And I'm not I mean, on the crime scene. And I'm not and I'm not um, oblivious to the fact that like crime happens in all communities and homicides happen in all communities, including Malibu. So I'm aware of that. It's just for a long time, I think I could be blissfully ignorant to it. Just kind of ignore that those things are happening all around me and just focus on surfing and going to the beach and like what is, you know, delightful in my life. But but I feel like it's encroaching. Uh, from all angles at this point, you know, like there's nowhere that you've, and then I, so the question of like, man, is it time to leave? The question to that is where would you even go? Like, I, I have a feeling just as you get older and cynical, you just notice these things. You know, when I go to the fair, when I'm talking about, when I'm complaining about the cultural confrontation that I'm having, it's mainly just people being rude. It's mainly just people dressing you know, completely offensively by my standards and obnoxiously (laughs) and being rude and just being too, uh, too loud and obnoxious and stuff like that. So I recognize that that's also my own grumpiness as I, it's interesting. There is a lack of civility. There seems to be a lack of civility. Is it more now than ever? Am I just for sure? Like if you look back, you know, I listened to a lot of Thomas Jefferson podcasts Yeah, yeah. back then, you know, they would, they were so much civility. They were all pretty much really well educated, at least. And they could speak at such a high level. And I just think that there's just a, I mean, I don't know, mass of humanity. I'm not one to, 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 you know, I obviously have problems forming sentences occasionally. So who knows? Who am I to say? But there's a lot of people, David, there are, and it can be troubling sometimes. And, and we all struggle with it. And it's kind of like, okay, well, we're here. How do we, our, what we need to do is set examples. That's all we can do is set the right example. I like it. I feel that gives me some purpose. At least I can plant my, you know, flag in that. But I think as, as you were talking about the Thomas Jefferson hour, I was thinking, um, they were founding fathers of a country. And when you, when you're starting something new, you do want to 
hold yourself to a certain standard that the community can rally around and society can kind of build its mores on. What I'm talking about with the OC Fair and with the uh, U.S. Open, it's all transient people. So they don't recognize the mores. It is the equivalent of a rental. How you treat a rental car or a hotel room is you are just passing through. And so you are going to jump that thing off a curb. You know what I mean? Like, because why wouldn't you? I'm not going to ever jump my own car, but right now I got an opportunity to jump this thing. So that's (laughs) why I'm talking about. I'm talking about the hotel room, by the way. Just kidding. Uh, So, so that's, I think what's happening is I'm in Orange County, which is a heavily touristed area. And these are two events that attract everybody from outside of the area. In addition to the normal tourism that it normally does, it now has these pillar events where everybody blows in and they're just using it like it is a temporary porta potty for them. Mm. And then they're going to blow out and not feel badly about it. And so that's where we see some of the worst behavior, I'm afraid. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm hung up on the word touristed that you used. Is that, is that even a word? I'm not sure. But anyway, um, um, I, I think we now pivot, David. I've got another Let's story pivot. that I want to bring up. The 24th Molokai to Oahu Paddleboard World Championship presented by the Hawaii Tourism Authority returned to racing yesterday after, David, a three-year hiatus due to the pandemic. Connecting the islands of Molokai and Oahu, the 32-mile race crosses the Kaivi Channel. I'm sure I butchered that. Also known as the Molokai Channel and the Channel of Bones. North Shore lifeguard Luke Shepardson and 2023 Eddie Aikau winner, 28 years old, from Haleiwa, Hawaii, completed his first experience crossing the Channel of Bones. He paddled across this thing, David, our Eddie Aikau champion. How long did it take Luke Shepardson to paddle across the Molokai to Oahu Channel on his paddleboard? I have no idea. What is an average time? I don't know what an average time is, but his time was seven hours and 13 minutes, 25 seconds. That is a brutal amount of time to be on any of any body of water on a paddleboard. I mean, that is a grind. And so my hat is off to him and all of the uh, competitors in the Molokai to Oahu paddleboard race. And congratulations for getting that race back on, on its way. Um, I'll tell you that the person that won it is from Australia, Charlie. He did it in four hours and 53 minutes. Holy cow. Yeah. I was going to guess eight hours was the average. So it sounds like eight's a lot. Well, that's on, on, I mean, Charlie did it on the unlimited, those 18 footer boards. There's a stock division, which I think is 12 foot boards. Another Australian won that division five hours and 40 minutes. And the female from New Zealand did the stock division in six hours and 20 minutes. Now, David, the stand-up foil division, stand-up foil division, another Australian won it, James Casey. Guess how fast he did it? I'm going to guess faster. Yes. Two hours, two hours, 19 minutes. So he did it in five less hours than Luke Shepardson, our Eddie Icow champion. Stand-up foil, two hours and 20 minutes. The woman from France, Olivia Piana, did it in basically three hours. Now, here's the crazy thing. The wing foil, where you have the little wing sail and you're foiling, 
The winner is 19-year-old Finn Spencer from Paea, Hawaii. He crossed that channel in an hour and 30 minutes. Wow. Now, which would you rather do? Like, if you're like, okay, I get to enter a division. I can be on the water for seven hours or plus, or I can be on the water for an hour and a half. Yeah. I mean, it really like fun an hour and a half. I could, I'm like, that sounds like fun. Let's do that. Yeah. I mean, obviously what's happening here is you're either friction on the surface or elevated above the surface flying uh, across all of that chop. And what creates, or the reason why they do that paddleboard race there in the first place is because it's challenging with all of the chop, right? And the wind. Um, but you eliminate all of that challenge once you're on the foil, and then you actually harness the challenge with the wind once you have the wing foil. So it makes sense that it would be that much more fast and advantageous, but that also highlights the joys of foiling. Like imagine riding a bullet train if you came out of the wagon, the the wild west where you were riding a wagon, and then you're introduced to a bullet train. That's the equivalent, you know? Yeah, it's funny. Um, be- I was speaking to a, an avid foiler yesterday and he told me, he goes, the, the fastest you go on a surfboard when you're like spit out of a tube, just flaring high speed is seven miles per hour. Wow. The average that you go on a foil when you're stand up foiling, when you're surf foiling, prone foiling, whatever they call it, surfing is 17 miles an hour. Wow it's so much faster. It's ridiculous. Like it's just hard not to be enamored by the, by the speed, which is kind of what we're all jonesing for when we're surfing. By the way, of note, a 14 year old Bobo or Bobo Gallagher from Lahaina placed third, 14 years old and in the wing foil and did it in an hour and 43 minutes. So uh, he should be called out for his expertise at such a young age. I'm sure we'll be hearing about Bobo or Bobo Gallagher in the future. Um, I saw Courtney Conlog was there competing in the paddle race. Oh, cool. Yeah. That's brutal, man. To do the pad, I would just never do. The thing about that paddle race, it's, it's, it's a downwind run, right? Hmm. But once you get to Oahu and you get to the China Walls area, and you, I think you've got to bend and come in at Portlock, it's brutal because all of a sudden it turns into the wind. You're, you're into it. Like the last three or four miles you're dealing with backwash off of the island and weird currents and the wind goes side wind and it's tough man it's a tough way to end a race i'll tell you that yeah no kidding crazy um well i mentioned that quicksilver edit repeater did you happen to watch that by any chance no but uh my son said it's pretty insane and i'm gonna see it i went on to stab this morning but i didn't have time to to fully engage with it, but um, I understand it's pretty incredible. Alan Cleland Jr. Yeah. Um, and the other guys, Mikey Wright, some other guys ripping in the Quicksilver. Yeah. It's uh, those guys that you mentioned, press, plus Griffin Colapinto, plus Rolo Montez, um, who I've seen in the last couple of years, Puerto Rican surfer, and then Kale Walsh. And Andy Neblis actually has a few clips, and I always love seeing Andy Neblis, but what I wanted to bring up to you about it was when I was talking about um, the Bryce Young film following the fall line yeah. and his relationship with Ryan Birch and how incredibly those boards look under his feet and Birch's feet in high performance too. You know, like it's, there's so many alternative shortboard 
shapes that we've seen in the last decade that they're never going to be as high performance as the pointy thruster, but they're more relatable, more usable for guys like you and I. The Birch stuff actually looks like a new gear. Like it actually looks like a new high performance gear uh, over and above what we've seen with the pointy thruster. And Bryce, I would argue, has the ability to surf every bit as good as, you know, any of the high performance thruster pros. Mikey Wright validates that. Mikey Wright, apparently, the story is that Surfline wrote was Mikey Wright DM'd Ryan Birch and said, hey, I would love to order some boards. And Ryan never replied to Mikey. But so so Mikey, Mikey was like, uh, I guess, yeah, Mikey's like, I guess I'm not getting those boards. But then Stephanie Gilmore was visiting Birch's factory for whatever reason, or maybe Lamination San Diego, where the boards are glassed. And um, and she saw the boards. And so she went back home to Australia, and she ran into Mikey, and she goes, hey, I saw your boards at Birch's factory. They look insane. And Mikey's like, really? I didn't even know he was building those. I asked for him, but he never asked me for my dimensions. He never asked me how big I am or any of that. So I'm shocked that he's actually building them. Well, <laughs> Mikey, Mikey was passing through California en route to Mexico, picked up the boards, and then they show them in the film riding those boards from Birch. And I think they're the models called the parallelogram, mm-hmm. but it's asymmetrical. And Mikey is shredding on them. Like you really mm-hmm. recognize it's it's been interesting to see Birch ride his own equipment, you know, but then seeing Bryce ride it was like, wow, that kind of unlocks a brand new thing. And then seeing Mikey ride it, and you know exactly how Mikey surfs normally, and seeing kind of the new little bit of, you know, facet unlocked with that board, I'm telling you, man. I I told you this three weeks ago. I was like, you know, Birch has all the demand, more demand than he can possibly supply. But after that Bryce Young film comes out, he is going to be buried for the next eight years. Yeah. I think this... This extends that to year 12, basically. Yeah. Well, a lot of people don't know this, but when Ryan was young, you know, when he was learning, when he started surfing, I don't know how old he was, but when he was in high school, he was a shortboarder. I mean, mm-hmm. he, he was a red hot ripping shortboard kid, you know, like we all were when we were in junior high, you know, like that was kind of what we did, you know, like, and um, so it doesn't surprise me that, that, Ryan's design elements have always been about unlocking speed and, and I can't I don't want to speak for Ryan I'm not a, a birch expert I, I barely know him I mean we know each other but we're not tight and so yeah I'm stoked I want to see Mikey right on these boards and and actually my son told me that the that the Bryce Young thing is super rad too just like you know I know you were talking about it I told him I go David loved it and so I need to engage in those. And if you're a listener, you need to engage in both of these and, and see what David's talking about. Yeah. Well, I loved the Quicksilver film. It's 30 minutes long. It's called Repeater. It's on YouTube. And what I love about it specifically is those guys just go huge on huge sections. You see them like telegraphing an air but it's a double overhead wave with like a meaty section on it. And you're like, well, he's probably just going to crack the lip. Like there's no way he goes for an air. Right. And then they do an air that's freaking eight feet tall. And you're like, well, he's going to bail. 
nope, doesn't bail. Just like <laughs> rotates and lands beautifully. And you're like, wow, that's insane. And it's over and over and over. They're all, there's like three or four of them all doing it. It's crazy. I actually saw a clip on Instagram of Alan Cleland Jr. And I'm sure you saw this clip where he just does what you said. Like he does this insane air and I'm like, oh, he's bailing out. He, I think he takes his back foot off. Yeah. And then puts his back foot on and just lands it. And it's the landing is just, it's all just so seamless and like, oh, yeah, here's the transition, you know, like no big deal. Like there wasn't any, uh, you know, oh, I can't believe I made it. It was like, bing, bing, bing. Yep. Of course. I do this all day long. What do you expect? That was the sickest clip in the film, I felt. And it got buried in the film because there's so much good surfing in the film. But when they pull it out and put it on Instagram, I think it got a little bit more love than the love that it deserved because. He actually check stalls into the tube and the tube doesn't quite open up. And so he like bottom turns mid face while he's almost in the tube still and just airs off the section that he normally was planning to get tubed on basically. Right. And he does that in that air. And because he came kind of flying out of that like little pocket ride section off the mid face bottom turn, he has so much speed and hits that lip. And like you said, he, is I don't know if he intended to do that judo kick or if it just happened, you know, but it kind of comes off and then comes back on and lands buttery. It's an insane clip. Well, when his foot comes off, I thought, oh, he's wiping out. Like this is his yeah. bail moment. Like it, it was, it was so spontaneous. It was incredible. Yeah, it really was. I I watched he's, that clip. He's like fast. Times. He's always been on my radar. He's he's one of my favorite guys. And again. You know, I sort of know his dad. I mean, I know his dad from 30 years ago. I don't think he and, his, he and I have spoken in a long time. But I'm a big fan of of Alan Clean, Cleland Jr. So I want to see him do well. And I'd love to see him on the world tour on the WCT. And I don't know if that's in his plans. I hope it is. Or if the CT still has any relevance or value at the time that he starts aiming for it. Well, it's funny you bring that up because... Um, one of the things I want to talk about, David, is this upcoming Chopu event. August 11th to the 20th, the WSL World Championship Tour event at Chopu. And what I want to talk about is this, is that the forecast for this event, David, speaks to how this current system, whether it's the ASP, the IPS, the WSL, this current system is handcuffed. Because, David, from August 6th through August 10th, a week before the event, Chopu will be pumping with good winds. It'll be 10 to 12 feet, 8 to 10 feet, 6 to 10 feet, 6 to 8 feet, 4 to 6 feet, all with good winds. Then the contest starts. Guess what? Bad winds for three days straight. Then good winds for one day. It'll be 5 to 7 feet. Then 3 to 4 feet with fair to good winds. Now, I'm no expert on Tahiti, and of course, the forecast is what it is. Winds, perhaps, more than any other element, uh, can change quickly. And so we're still 10 days out. Yeah. But So this could change. But the new system of professional surfing, whenever and if ever it's created, needs to be dictated by the forecast and not by event permits. And that problem needs to get solved. It's like Los Alamos level brainstorm session whiteboarding needs to address how do we get the best surfers in the best waves at a location? We need to get all the experts in the room and nobody leaves until that gets solved. Otherwise, it's just regurgitating the same old, oh, we missed it, we missed it because we got, you know. And I know you and I have spoken about this at length, but this just is another great example 
of uh, the current system is handcuffed by event permits. Well, I'm glad you bring it up again because it can't be overstated. And if anybody were to design a business to run surf contests in 2023, they would never, ever, ever design it the way that it's currently designed. They would design it the way that you just said. It would be obvious as anything that it needs to be. Let's who are the best surfers in the world? Okay. What are the best waves in the world? When do they take place? Cool. Let's run them in that. That would be unbelievably obvious. Like that's the only way you can even build that business, right? Like there's no other way to build that business. And so the fact that they're still operating under these crazy archaic parameters is totally insane. And if they don't make the adjustment, first of all, they've already eroded the goodwill of their core, you know, customer and viewer. We know that they're never going to achieve the elusive new viewership under the model of wave pools in the U.S. Open that they're no, pursuing. Completely boring. Totally boring. We all know that. And so if they don't uh, make the correction, it just leaves a wide open berth for somebody else to come in and go ahead and do that. And nobody has, unfortunately. But in the void, we've all shifted our attention to just... Um, watching the free surf edits and to folk and like i said to them losing their relevance what al cleveland jr has no reason to pursue the ct event you know because he doesn't have to at this point he can make edits and do it otherwise and i i was months maybe a month ago stab posted their most popular male surfers where they took like a poll from their audience yeah and on that list five of them are ct surfers so that list, I happen to have it in front of me. It's John Florence, Dane Reynolds, Mason Ho, Ethan Ewing, uh, Jack Robinson, Kelly Slater, Michael February, Griffin Colapinto, Mick Fanning, Torin Martin. That list in the past, it was eight CT surfers, sometimes 10 CT surfers, you know? Yeah. And so the fact that there's only five of them on there now, I think is a real indicator that it has lost a lot of its rele- relevancy. And so if they're not taking kind of notes of those shifts in the culture, then they are, like I said, not only leaving a gap for somebody to come in and run their business better than they run it themselves, but for us just to focus our attention on people who just aren't wearing a jersey anymore. Yeah, which is the case. I mean, that's exactly what we're doing. And I'm uh, of the belief that competition is good for the culture. I, I think it's good. Like, I think there's a place for it. And I think world tour level, the best of the best competitors I think it's important um, to determine who's the best in competition in 10 to 12 foot chopu. Yeah. I think it, it it's it's fascinating, you know, it because what we'll find is that it's Kelly Slater and John John Florence are the best surfers in the world. Now they might not be the best at four foot Japan or whatever, and I'm just using those two guys. Obviously, Gabe. There's a handful of guys that you're like, wow. And it could very well be that Clay Marzo and whoever else are great free surfers, but they're just not competitive surfers. Like they can't uh, pull it off within the confines of, or the constricts of, hey, you've yeah. got 45 minutes to catch two really good waves. Now, we sort of find that hard to believe, but at some point you get the best surfers in the world and they're all capable physically, but it gets down to do they have the mental fortitude to pull it off and I think of like a guy like Jack Robinson when you 
look at the latest stabbing about his paddle battle with Leo. Like that was just mental drive. And that's what's fascinating about competition. You see the guys that rise mentally to the occasion. And then you see this in all sports. It's look, there's a bunch of great golfers. There's a great bunch of great tennis players. It's the individuals that can pull it from within their heart, you know, and rise to the occasion that makes sports so great. And uh, I think there's a place for it. I do too. The problem is it's now 95% of sport and only 5% of man, woman versus nature. Yeah. Because the reality is if you run them at pumping cloud break, a lot of those limitation or those like um, contest jitters go away. You know what I mean? Like if there's sets pouring through, everybody has, has their opportunities then it really does just come down to who's the best surfer and you're not so worried about the paddle battle. There might be a paddle battle that exists, but again, it becomes the 5%, not the 95%. But the constructs that they've created, it is now, let's focus on who is the steeliest competitor. And the most kind of, um, I don't know, the best surfer in the world thing is out the window. At the end of the year, we don't know who the best surfer in the world is, ultimately, at the end of the CT year. You know? Yeah. Well, uh it's going to be interesting to see how this event. I'm just, I'm just so disappointed to see. Per, it's mostly about the winds too. There's swell on during their waiting period, but the the winds are looking really, really bad. So, and then it dies. It's like three, three, three to four feet for the last three days. You know, and it's, are you kidding me? This and it reminds us right of G-Land last year, where it was mm -hmm. pumping before they show up and it's small, and of course a lot of it relates to uh, we need to be. Uh, we need to be able to to move quickly and react quickly, and so that means less surfers and less yeah. overhead, less operations. As again, we've talked at length about. Well, yeah, there there's uh, there was another story that was reported on uh, on Stab talking about cloud break might be coming back. Yeah, and it says that according to inside sources, negotiations between the WSL and the new Fijian government are reportedly underway. Yeah. Hopes of seeing Cloudbreak listed on the 2024 schedule have, in turn, been tickled. It all uh, So if all goes to plan, the WSL will list Fiji on the tour schedule again for the first time since 2017. Nothing at this point has been locked in, but here's what we know so far. The ongoing negotiations between the WSL and the Fijian government are reportedly being facilitated by the surf literate Fijian Surf Association the sole government organization responsible for all matters related to the development of Fiji, sur surfing in Fiji. However, with a fresh government in power, there's a considerable amount of legwork to get the new officials up to speed on how the surf event works. I'm going to interject here and say, this is where I don't have faith that the WSL is going to educate them on what you just talked about. <laughs> I'm concerned that the WSL will sit down with the Fijian government and say, hi, we need a two-week waiting period because we have 32 male surfers and 24 female surfers, and it's uh, we need that to be locked down three years in advance. We're going to pick the window now. You know, like, that is absolutely the wrong conversation. If it's a brand-new organization in Fiji, Fijian government, they need to be like, hey, perfect, time to clean the slate. Here's what we want to do. We want to have a rotating permit that is, you know, we can lock in one week in advance, and that's the solution here. Yeah, I totally agree, and and I think on some level too, these Department of Tourism, these 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 administrative place, um, um, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? These 
these Department of Tourism's, whoever's in charge of them, they need to be kind of leading the, the discussion almost. You know, like, yeah. in other words, if you're the WCL, you go to these nation states and you say, here's how we can make you look the best by running X number exactly. of surfers in perfect waves rather than exactly. here's how you can make me look good. It needs to be here's how we're going to make your nation state look great. And and I think that you could probably tap into a lot of these department of tourism or these tourism boards or whatever they're called. And they're, you know, they're different in each nation state. But like if you could get the Tahiti Department of Tourism and the Fijian Department and the Indonesian Department of Tourism on board with we got to run great surfers and great waves. It's going to be a challenge, and here's how we're going to do it, and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Well, the article goes on to say that the WSL is reportedly asking the Fijian government for a figure around $1 million, this in exchange for the marketing exposure that the CT event would bring, which is what you're talking about. Spearheading negotiations is the business-savvy Andrew Stark, a forerunner for the new WSL CEO position. He currently serves as general manager for the WSL for Australia, Asia, and Oceania. For reference, the biggest government spend on any WSL contest is the Margaret River CT, where the Western Australian government puts up over a million dollars per year to be the presenting sponsor. So they see the value in exactly what you're talking about, but to be perfectly honest, they only see, I would say they only get their proper marketing exposure if the waves are good. And they run, you know, a, yeah. uh, a fabulous event, essentially. Well, I, I hope Andrew Stark, you know, does what he can do. I'm a little bit concerned that he's too close to the WSL belly to break the mold, you know. And I know that, that Andrew Stark uh, is well-received and, and, and is, you know, knows what he's doing. I'm not doubting his expertise. I'm just wondering, does he have the ability or the foresight or the can he break the mold and i don't know yeah the reality is he has his own uh he's working within the construct of the tour system and if he can't yeah exactly there's no way to break the mold unless you can rework the system and so if he does simply get a million dollars from the government and they're gonna book the event three years in advance on a locked in time window for a two week waiting period, they're just rolling the dice again. It's no different other than they have a million dollars that's supporting the, you know, operating yeah. expenses of the event, but they're not going to guarantee getting the best servers and the best waves with that model. I almost feel like the, I know that I've heard people say, you guys talk too much about this. And I would agree. That's probably true. But I want to say that we have to continue to beat the drum. I feel like we have to beat the drum. There has to be change or we're just going to keep getting the same missed opportunity. Well, we talk about it less now than ever before. And I mean, for an example, I have in my notes um, uh, scenarios at Chopu of who could qualify, blah, blah, blah. And I'm not even inclined to talk about it. I wasn't even going to bring it up, even though it's in my notes or going to blow past it because we're talking about it less and less because they've lost our interest. I have to muster the interest to talk about the WSL at this point. And I, so, and so that would be their incentive for adjusting is we're going away. Your fans are going away. Yeah. Um, I do have a listener email or actually phone call if you would like to hear it. Yeah. Can you hold on for just a sec? Yeah. When we come back from break. 
quick commercial love, of course, for real water sports and uh, naked Viking fins as well. Yeah, well, look, Trip and Matt and Jason and Travis and the entire crew over there at Real Water Sports really took care of us, David, when we were there in North Carolina, the Outer Banks. And you don't have to go all the way there. You can simply go onto realwatersports.com and check out their selection of surfboards, surfcraft, foils, hard goods, soft goods. You can get it all delivered to your home from Real Water Sports. And, um, but with all the same customer service that you and I experienced, all the, all the genuine, sincere goodness that um, Southern hospitality that we, that we were lucky enough to uh, partake in. So realwatersports.com. I'm a huge fan. You're a huge fan because they're great people. Totally agree. Love it. World-class customer service is something that has gone the way of the Dodo, but not at Real Water Sports. <laughs> the Dodo, it that's quite a reference. <laughs> Thank you. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention about uh, Naked Viking Surf, Naked Viking Fins. Yeah. I'm not going to mention which board it was, but I got a new surfboard fairly recently, and it came with a set of fins rode that board, let's say four or five times. And I was like, not loving it, you know, but I told, uh, Leif at naked Viking, what I was writing and the details about it. He goes, I'm going to send you two sets of fins and you decide what works best. And let me tell you, it is far superior than the set of fins that I had in that board. That board actually shreds. I love that board. It just needed those Taylor Knox ones, the Knox, the Knox twins. Yeah. Here's a little mini stabilizer with this in the back. And that Sweet. was the big unlock is just swapping out the fins to Naked Viking and boom, brand new surfboard under my feet. All right. Good stuff. Well, I've had that same experience, same exact experience with Leif. We talked on the phone. He said, here's what I'm thinking. And he sent me um, some stuff in the, the boards I'm riding. Uh, look, the fins are on some regard, I, they're not the complete engine. Of course, there's... There's lift and concave in the, in the in the board that affects a lot of this, but uh, boy, the fins are a huge part of the engine. You got to have the right fins, uh, and feel free to experiment with different fins because each engine, uh, you know, they're 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 specific to certain types of body weight and all that stuff. So don't be afraid to uh, to to put new fins in like David did and get uh, all of a sudden an entirely different ride. And it's easy to say like the fins themselves are great because they are, but really the unlock is Jamin and Leif at NVS, like having two experts, that customer service role that we're talking about with real water sports, they are phenomenal at as well. And I know I've had listeners say that they've emailed them and gotten phenomenal feedback and response and locked them into, you know, the best fins. So, and guess what? You, you'll be able to meet both of those guys at the boardroom show, October, Seventh and eighth boardroom international surfboard show presented by U.S. Blank. So meet the guys from Naked Vikings Fins. They're super fun to talk with, and they've got great insights about what might be good in your board. Yeah, I think it's a great move for them to be there because they are like such a great resource and available and eager to share that passion. I mean, they quit their day jobs. I forget how many years ago now. They had flourishing careers, and they quit those day jobs because they're passionate about this. So. Yeah. Good. Yeah, tap Good into stuff. that for sure. Surfnvs.com. Driftline, are you kidding me, David? I love my Driftline board shorts. Frankly, look, let's be honest. Nobody gives a crap what little logo is on your board shorts. What's important is function, right? Less fashion, more function. 
And what makes them so unique, David? Tell the listening audience. Patented wetsuit lined board shorts. So uh, it is a half a millimeter of neoprene underneath the board short. It's sewn into the board short. It's all one unit basically, but it is um, got three, I'd say, functions to it. Obviously, warmth comes with that neoprene. Padding comes with a neoprene and compression. So it keeps everything snug and tight, which strangely in that area feels better than going going free. <laughs> Why is that strange? That's not strange. That's completely normal. Well, you Look, would think naked, you would think protecting your unit. Yeah, I, I, you're right. It does protect. I'm just saying you would think freedom would be the best, right? The way oh, mother nature made you no. being free balling would be the most comfortable. Turns out compression's more comfortable. Right. Free balling means chafing, chafing. Right and problems. Right. You know what I'm saying? This is protection. You talked about, you know, it's not about fashion, it's about function, but to be honest, there's no sacrifice in the fashion as well. These are every bit as technical of a board short as any of the other premium board shorts on the market. Four-way stretch material, quick dry, uh all that kind of stuff. They look great. The colorways are great. So there's really no sacrifice. It's just a superior product because you get that bonus of the patented yeah. suit. No, you're absolutely right. It's so. incredible fashion with even better tech and function. There you go. You know, so it's the best of both worlds. Look, it's just a killer board short, but underneath it, you get plus, plus, plus upside. Yeah. So driftline.co, not .com, driftline.co. Get yourself a pair of drifties. Use our promo code, which is the word SPIT, and you will save 15%. When you're hiring for a small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role, and there's no faster or effective way than through LinkedIn Jobs. Your time and capital are precious, and there is a powerful resource that can help you focus on what you're good at and integrate people into your team seamlessly to help grow your business. LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to find the right professionals for your team efficiently and for free. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. Everyone is already on LinkedIn with their resumes and references, and now LinkedIn has designed a hiring platform to connect you with candidates specifically qualified for the job that you post about. More than a billion professionals meticulously organized to connect people by skill set to help us all advance our position. 2.5 million businesses already use LinkedIn for hiring, and 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. It's that fast, easy to use, and effective. LinkedIn Jobs can help you write job descriptions, filter the right person to you, and give you the tools to help you interview them like a pro. LinkedInjobs.com slash surf is where you go to post your job for free. Yes, totally free. That's linkedinjobs.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. 
Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Okay. All right. Welcome back. We have a listener line call from uh, James in San Diego. Scott, David, this is James calling in to the Spit podcast. Um, so I was just listening to your guys' talk about, uh, just shapers in the boardroom and how, uh, Stab often recycles a bunch of, uh, shapers or the same shapers of Pizel, Loss, Channel Islands, et cetera, and how it'd be cool to get some, you know, lesser known people in those, uh, in those competitions. And I know there are other, obviously other shapers out there making very high quality surfboards than, you know, the big ones. Uh, but I'm just wondering, do you guys think that it's possible for a uh, maybe an up-and-coming or lower-end shaper to really stay on the same caliber as those upper uh, those upper brands of, like, Paisal and Lost? Uh, it just seems like they have so many resources to put into R&D that they really are on the cutting edge of, you know, surf craft building. Do you think that there is space for uh, lesser-known or up-and-coming shapers to fill or to be able to uh, keep up with those bigger brands in terms of R&D. Uh, I don't know. Just kind of thoughts um, about why people just pick uh, or why Stab and other media outlets pick these bigger known brands and to test those boards exclusively um, time and time again. I'm just trying to get to uh, get to the bottom of why that is. But anyways, keep up the work. Love the podcast and stay stoked. Scott, do you want to lead us off? What are your thoughts? Uh, well, first of all, James, great call. And um, and it's a really great question. I think from a CT standpoint, I think it's difficult for a young up-and-coming shortboard shaper to kind of break through the mold, you know? Um, I mean, Sharp Eye, Marcio, has been a great shortboard shaper for 30 years or whatever, and he sort of just broke through in, say, the last six years or so. Um, and I could be off by a few years here or there, but what it takes is, and Paisel's a great example, is it takes a world caliber sh- a surfer to commit to riding your equipment for a long period of time so that you get enough eyeballs on it so that your sales get to a place where you can dedicate a lot of marketing dollars to just giving surfboards to to John John and to a few other of the best surfers in the world. And before you know it, other guys on John John's level and caliber are going, Hey, what are you riding? Can I get Marcio or John Pizel to make me? And before you know it, you're building this, this fabulous sort of stable of great surfers. And now your sales can, and it's just kind of, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. It just, everything kind of keeps snowballing. And so it's difficult. And, and you know, it's what comes to mind is Tim stamps comes to mind. Like Tim had a, a you know, was making headway and still is with professional surfing. And there are so many, Tim Stamps is an excellent shaper. He's one of the greatest shapers around. 
Um, but it just shows that it's hard to like to to get your teeth into the CT and to keep surfers on your boards for a long period of time. It's difficult, you know. And um, I now I think... that's different than his question about stab and stab in the dark and why they're still using the same guys. So I know yeah, I well, didn't, but I think it's related to be honest because there's no replacing number of boards under your belt, like number of boards that you've built. Right. And so the fact that it ends up being at the top end of the CT DHD channel islands, Pizel, Marcio is no coincidence. Right. And those guys each have at least 20 years of shaping under each of their respective belts. Now, of course, there are other things like you're talking about, the Tim Stamps of the world who have 30 years of shaping under their belt and are making every bit as good of surfboards. But what's missing, it is a trifecta of the things that you talked about. Number of boards under the belt, R&D with a specific world-class talent, that really expedites, I think, yeah. the design process. Yeah. But the third thing is marketing. You cannot achieve that level of success and boards sold without marketing. And so those entities, the Pizel, the Channel Islands, they at some point turned on the marketing machine. Yeah. And that then fuels all of the sales. And so I think that like you can have, you can be making the best boards in the world or, you know, among equivalent to the best boards in the world. There's a lot of guys. I mean, I, I, as it relates to pointy thrusters, I would throw into that conversation, Matt Keckley. There's, um, oh, there's so she, many, there's, there's so, so many, many. You, you can't, can't even, even name them. Yeah. Exactly. They're, and so what they all those make people, super high quality, excellent three, but three they haven't, airports. they haven't unlocked the marketing machine. And some of them don't the want way, to, quite frankly, they just like, dude, I'm, I'm a one man show. Now you're asking me to like totally change my trip. I got to hire somebody and they just totally. don't want to do it. It, totally. It's a very different skill set, right? Yeah, it is. And the other thing is to work with a world-class talent or CT level talent, let's say, it's expensive oh, yeah. to give all those surfboards away and to do all of that R&D is wildly expensive. And so it becomes a business uh, equation that you have to solve, which is I'm dedicating my time towards this design thing and building these boards. I need to use some of these profits to hire that marketing team and to facilitate some of the back end stuff so that I can focus on doing my thing. And so it's just difficult to make that jump from a business standpoint. And I think that's what answers James's question um, is why there is kind of this divide of these same people without these lesser known brands jumping and making that leap is it's just that they haven't solved for that equation that we're talking about. Yeah. And some of them don't want to, and it's tough. You know, another great example that comes to mind is Midget Smith. So the 2001 OP boat trip challenge in Indonesia, uh, I was on it with Surfer Magazine and Aki won it. And Aki used a Midget Smith surfboard that he borrowed from one of the photographers, one of the filmers for whoever it was, Blue Torture, I forget who it was, might've been Fuel or whatever. But one of those guys brought his midgets. He was from San Clemente. He had a killer midget Smith Trifin. Aki loved it. Aki basically took it from him. I mean, of course, the guy's like, yeah, you can ride it. He rode it throughout the event and won the event on a midget Smith surfboard. You know, here's a great example, right? There are a million guys 
like Tim Stamps, like Stu Kenson, like Chris Christensen, like there's, they're, they're endless. We're just naming the, you know, there's so many guys that can make excellent surfboards, but there's only a few that have the marketing resources and the, and the desire to hire that other part of the business and get that other part of the business up and running. And by the way, you're also competing a in a very small little market, you know, like, uh, there's only so many pro surfers on the tour and, um, you need one of those guys to own your brand and to champion your brand the way Pais- uh, the way John, John has with Pizel, the way that for instance, Carissa has with, with lost the way that Andy and Corey did with lost, you know, it, you just, a lot of it's luck, you know, like I think when Kanoa went over to sharp eye, um, that was like a big scoop because here we got a guy that's huge in Japan. This was before the Olympics, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I think we kind of identified exactly what it is. But I think to your point, Stab could tap into um, the Tim Stamps of the world. Totally. The, the, and they the other, should. They should. Well, the other thing, though, is they have done that a little bit in the past. Yeah, they they did it this year with Idolo. Yeah. And when those boards don't win from the lesser known shapers, it could have nothing to do with that shaper being lesser known. You know what I mean? Like the board, it could just be the fact that this particular surfer on this particular wave, this particular board worked best for them. And if it was at a different location on a different day, they would have picked the board that they instead threw out this time. So there's so many variables. And um, I always like those ones, those videos, uh, those I don't know what you would call them. I guess they're like features that Stab does when they highlight the shaper more. I don't really need to know too much more about Elo or Taj, but I'd like to know more about KT from Maui. You mm-hmm. know, I'd like to, you know what I mean? So anyway, that's my thoughts. And I know they too, they've done that. Well, as, you know, we're, we're being a little bit hypercritical here of Stab. They've done a good job, but you know, these are just our thoughts that they could excavate the surfers person, the shapers personalities and who they are and why they are, or what they are. I think, I think it's fascinating. Well, I, I would like to point out that bringing it back to Ryan Birch is that he's really defying everything that we're talking about right now, but it's because I think he's such a phenomenal surfer, like him being able to build boards for himself and ride them at a world-class level has expedited the learning curve of those designs, you know, whereas if you are just a shaper building high performance craft and waiting for feedback and you start working with the local pros, it's a slower process than working with a world-class talent. And so Birch being able to do all of that R and D himself, I feel like expedited his process in a way that a lot of shapers don't have access to. Yeah. Uh, You're, you're, you nailed it. You're absolutely right. And, um, Birch is a rare bird. Yeah, totally. Cool. Well, you got anything else in your notes? Things to discuss? I'm going foiling. I've been foiling. I've foiled the last four out of five days. I'm going to go foiling now. I'm still um, at the sort of, I don't know what stage you would call it. I guess it's beginner. I'm definitely a beginner. Um, But I'm getting to my feet. I'm going along and then I'm wiping out and I'm committed I'm committed to doing it mostly because the waves have been so crappy. It's been really good for learning how to foil. <laughs> yeah. Good. Well, yeah. I, I applaud you. Um, we should state too, that real water sports was shooting footage of us throughout that whole week. I mean, drone footage and stuff like that. So 
I presume we'll see that at some point soon. <laughs> it's going to be a great wipeout segment. Maybe that's why we haven't seen it is it's not actually worth using. Not much there. <laughs> They're like, God, we dedicated all these resources to filming these guys. And I'm not going to waste more resource on editing this stuff. This is a nightmare. Hell no. Yeah. All right. Well, look, it's been a great show, David. Until next time, adios and aloha. in the